Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. My name is Known Wells. And today on the show, I am so excited to share with you uh, someone I've been listening to online on podcasts for a very long time. Her name's Allison Rosen. And if you're not listening to her podcasts, uh, they are Allison Rosen is your new best friend, and her new parenting podcast with Greg Fitzsimmons is called Childish. They are both delightful. I love her, and I was just so grateful to have uh, on on the show. Uh, if you guys remember, in my special birthday episode a few episodes back, uh, I listed Allison as one of my dream guests, and it happened. And I'm so grateful. She's the best. We had such a good conversation. We talked about self-care as a mom and growing up with overprotective parents on Allison's part, uh, being empathetic in like a politically ugly world. We talked about the grief and loss of suicide and even the time Allison accidentally dated a weird white pride guy. Uh, We also talked about Capri shorts, if those are a thing or not. Uh, But it was just such a delightful uh, chat with my new best friend, Allison Rosen. She's the best. Go listen to her podcast. Oh, and uh, most importantly of all, maybe not, maybe second most important behind this this episode is that uh, tomorrow, September 3rd at the Belly Room, in, in the Belly Room at the Comedy Store in LA at 8 p.m., Allison and Greg are doing their first live childish podcast recording with special guest Andy Richter, and I am going to be in the audience. I bought tickets. Tickets are only $5, so if you go uh, to the show notes for this episode, you can uh, click on a few spots and buy tickets. Maybe I'll see you there in the audience. That would be great. Um, And uh, Allison is just uh, awesome, and you should support her. So listen to her podcast. Go to Live Childish taping uh, tomorrow at September 3rd, Belly Room. Again, all, all of that info is in the show notes for this episode. You guys, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening to this show. It means the world to me. Uh, this show continues to kind of grow in listenership, and I, I love it. Uh, we're building a, a world of feely humans, and it, it warms my heart. It warms my sweet, sweet heart. Thank you for being here. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at YumiEmpathy. I've got a Patreon page if you want to support the show on an ongoing basis. That's at patreon.com slash YumiEmpathy. We also have a Facebook group uh, if you want to go join the closed uh, private group over there uh, and engage with some other feely humans. You can. It's facebook.com slash groups slash YumiEmpathy. Okie dokie, artichokies. Again, this is episode 91 with one of my empathy heroes and dream guests, the lovely, wonderful, best friend, and never been seen in Capri shorts, Allison Rosen. 
Empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly, without judgment, about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand-in-hand, Break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I am beyond this pale blue dot giddy to be here with podcaster, author, mom, best friend, and human who will never be caught wearing capri shorts because they may or may not exist. Who really even knows? It's Allison Rosen. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Of um, course. So a note about capri shorts. Uh, <laughs> so that is a reference to something that happened on on one of my shows, Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Uh, it comes out twice a week and, you know, Monday is a one-on-one and Thursday is a panel. And on the panel show... Uh, David Huntsberger said that his grandmother was, he was telling a story from a long time ago and his grandmother was wearing capri shorts. <laughs> then Wendy Molyneux was like, hold up, there's no such thing as capri shorts. And he's like, yeah, there, there are. And it turned into quite a big thing, <laughs> this debate about whether there are capri shorts. And her argument was capri means a little bit shorter. Right. So like, like capri pants are short pants. So there's no such thing as capri shorts. They would just be shorts. Exactly. And it really took on a life of its own. I had to say I was on her side. <laughs> and then the smoking gun uh, arrived on Twitter. I don't know if you saw this. I retweeted it. I didn't it. see it. Please tell me. Someone someone found a website that had a picture of really like fashionably questionable. And I'm not one to talk because I'm not a fashion person. But, <laughs> but, but even I was able to be like, what are these? They were... Like they look like denim knickers, and they were referred to as capri shorts. So I don't know what's reality. Interesting. Anymore. Yeah. Wow. Well, I just I, I had to mention that because first of all, I love David, and I love Wendy and David's uh, banter. It's delightful. No, they are great together. They thank really you. are. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm 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 a huge fan, and I'm excited to have you. Let's uh, let's start with a little emotional check in. How are you? How's you? How's the week been? How how are you feeling? Um, I I'm actually okay. I just woke up from a nap. Um, my new thing because I have a two and a half year old and I have a six month old. Um, so in general, sleep is like not a thing that happens that much <laughs> lately. <laughs> and they've been sick this week. Oh um, no! So yeah, so I've been up a lot in the night, and then I'll take a nap in the day. And, um, I have like a bunch of weird dreams and then I wake up really out of it. So I'm sure that, well, I don't, I actually don't know that much about the science of sleep, but I imagine that like I'm waking up at the wrong cycle or my circadian rhythm is off or I don't know what it is, but I feel like Rip Van Winkle every time I wake up. Like that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, so I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit, uh, out of it right now, but, uh, trying to, trying to, uh, come back into my body and have this conversation. Um, so yeah, things are okay. But like I said, Elliot, my, my older son, um, got really sick and, 
um, was just miserable. Mm-hmm. And thankfully the, the, the like hardcore sickness only lasted one day, but he's still coughing and uh-huh. has a runny nose. And then my husband got it and I had never seen him as sick as he was. Oh boy. Uh, so he stayed home from work yesterday, but he went to work today. So he's, it, thankfully it seems to be like, there's just one really bad day. Yeah. Um, and then the six month old, had a runny nose last night and woke up with a runny nose, but seems to be an okay spirit. So I'm just like waiting. I'm just hoping it passes right by me. Oh man. I hope so too. Thank you. That is the thing. I, w- my wife and I don't have kids, but we have most of our friends do. And the thing is once a kid gets sick, it seems as though everyone gets it. Yeah. Right. Um, but hopefully you can avoid that, that. Well, yeah. I mean, the funny thing is like when Elliot got sick, I didn't even try to avoid, I mean, I am hoping to avoid it, but I didn't put anything in practice to actually avoid it. Like if it was a friend, I would try not to hug them or I'd try to wash my hands a lot or, you know, I'm sort of mindful of trying to wash my hands before I go from Elliot to Owen because I don't want to pass it. But in terms of me, I'm just like, yeah, I'm probably just going to get it. Well, you're a mom. You're not a monster like putting Elliot in like a sort of (laughs) an airtight box. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for recognizing that I'm not that kind of monster. You're not a monster. Yes, I recognize that. (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, Let's. So the thing I like to ask my guest, Allison, is um, before we kind of get into your story a bit is, can you... Are there any moments, like seminal moments, that kind of speak to who you are today? Things from your childhood, things from young adulthood, um, moments um, that stick out as being sort of like important or integral to who you are as a human today. Anything that kind of sticks out you want to share? Oh, that is a big question. (laughs) It is. It is. Uh, Let me think. I mean, there's a couple that jump out. Sure. And... They, well, I'll say what they are and then I'll sort of give my, my commentary a little bit on them because I sort of want to issue a disclaimer around them. But, um, when I was six, uh, and by the way, I don't know that these are the kind of seminal moments that you're looking for. So, so there's a lot. Hey, here's the thing. (laughs) I'm not looking for anything. This is, this is your show. It's what you want to share. Um, well, these are just the ones that are coming to mind. But when I was six, uh, we, d- we did this thing in school where we, I don't know how they did it, but like they traced our, um, our profile. So somehow like they made a shadow on, on a bigger piece of paper and they made your profile and then you cut out your profile and then you decorated it and you wrote, you know, whatever you like, whatever quote spoke to you as a six year old. Okay. Uh, and, and by the way, no six year old is good at, <laughs> at cutting. So it was very jagged, but I drew flowers on it and I wrote, I love the world and I don't hate anyone. Aww. And the teachers were so moved by that that they, you know, brought it up to my parents and then my parents framed it and that hung in the house. Um, for I don't know where it is now. Uh, at some point, I guess they decided that was no longer the the family ethos. But for a while, <laughs> she's like that. Allison's no longer uh, abiding by this this life ethos. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, so I think pretty young. It was um, pointed. It was like noticed and pointed out that I had a very big heart and that I was empathetic. Another story that my, my parents love to tell 
is that um, in preschool, so this is preschool, there was this boy who was crying one day and I went over and I asked him, you know, what was wrong. And his best friend didn't, at the time, <laughs> didn't want to play with him. So I gave him a hug. And again, his parents called, I mean, sorry, not his parents, the teachers like talked to my parents about that. So I think that, um, I think that early on, I learned that being nice and big hearted is praised mm. and is special. Valued. Yeah, is valued. So I think, um, and I think that I, tr- I, I, I hope and I want to be, and I think I truly am those things, but I guess my commentary around it is a little bit, I think that who you are at like six or at four or five or whatever, like everything's still kind of transforming, you know, the concrete yeah. is not set yet. So I think that I learned that that's a good way to be. And I don't think that's bad. I mean, cause I think that those are good ways to be, but I think that that has be, you know, I have, that has sort of, um, become, how I regard myself mm-hmm. from a, from an early age. And I wonder how much was that reinforced and how much was that organic? Hmm. Do you, I mean, I, I it, it, it is a great place to be. I mean, obviously over time, as we kind of grow as adults, the sort of circumstances change a bit and, and sort of like what sort of builds up into that and like the reasons mm-hmm. why and all the nuances, those change. But like, it is a good place to be generally. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's true. I guess I just noticed with my own kids. Well, what I was going to say is with my own kids, I, I'm conscious of trying not to tell them who they are, Mm. but they're a lot younger, but also at the same time, like if Elliot is sweet to his brother, I really go overboard with praising him for doing (laughs) that or if he shares. So, so I'm doing the same thing that my parents did when I think about it. I mean, and I, then I, in terms, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Sorry. Um, I'm just other moments. I, you know, and I've talked about this a bit on my podcast. Um, after I graduated college, a friend of mine committed suicide and it really like not like threw me for a loop. I mean, I just, it kind of, I was kind of stuck for a mm. couple of years after that. Um, and I just, I, I, I grieved in a way that I hadn't grieved prior to that. And I think that that I couldn't see it at the time, but I had this sense that like, this is a thing that has that I, I recognize this will, this is a seminal moment. Mm. I don't know what, how it's going to be one, but it is one like, this is a huge, huge, awful, hard thing. Yeah. So that's one it's a um, huge loss. Yeah, it was, it was tough. Um, and I did not become suicidal afterwards, but I definitely was, I was so just beside myself with grief and anger, even though like I, my therapist at the time really wanted me to get in touch with the anger. And I'm just like, yeah, not, I'm not in touch with it. In general, I have trouble being in touch with anger. Mm. Um, but I guess I had, I lost faith in like the universe and in the world. I felt like I thought I was going to have this happy life for, for some reason. I just thought that I was destined to have a like pretty good, happy life. And this was not supposed to happen. I mean, I think that for people who are religious, something like that probably 
could make them feel betrayed by God or sure. feel that like, hey, I've done everything you wanted me to do, so why is this happening now? Um, and I didn't have religion, but I did have some kind of faith that, uh, yeah, like I said, like that, you know, I was going to have a, a happy life, and if I try hard, then the things I put my mind to will happen. And this was just like, what, what the? Do you swear on this podcast? Oh fuck yeah! Okay, <laughs> like what the fuck? Like this was. I just, it was just so beyond the pale of anything I expected might happen. So that was real tough. Um, and then I think moving to New York also uh, was was a seminal a seminal moment and a seminal time in my life. Sure. Yeah, we, you and I are, um, we did the same thing. I, I grew up in Orange County and right after college moved to New York myself. Oh, um, but I, I do want to explore the, the sort of your grief in losing your friend. What other than sort of like the questioning, the, um, you know, the sort of life perspective changes, any, what else did your grief look like? And did you, how did you process it? How did you get through that? So I should go into a little more detail and it's, it's a, it's a weird story that only recently I've started thinking about maybe a little bit differently. Mm. Um, the person who committed suicide was my professor and I had a huge crush on him. We were friends, nothing, nothing physically inappropriate ever happened between us. Mm -hmm. Um, but we had a close friendship and we emailed all the time and we would go to lunch and I would visit him during office hours. And there were these moments in class where he would say something to the class, but it was really kind of meant for me. And it was the most that my senior year of college, because this was going on was such a heady time for me because I had this like secret closeness with my, or, or whatever it was flirt flirtation yeah. for lack of a better word with my professor. And he was this very, well-respected professor. He was almost like a Doogie Howser. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's occurring to me that that's a reference that not everyone's going to get because um, that is an older show at this point. But he was this like young superstar, and he had I, he had gone to high school early, and then he had graduated college early, and then he became a professor young. So he was about twenty something years older than I was, but he had been. Um, I think he had become a professor at like 23 or 24 or something like that. Got it. So, um, and I, and I bring that up because not only was, like I said, was it like, it was like this in academics, it was like this rock star took this special interest in me. Sure. So yeah. it was just, it to feel good. It felt so good because I was always this kind of awkward, uh, shy, miss less so in college than high school, but, so I felt like a misfit. So here's this rock star person that everyone thinks is like amazing. His classes were really hard to get into. And I'd known about him ever since I started that college. But I think something about how popular his classes were and how popular he was turned me off a little bit. But then senior year, I decided I would take a class with him. And like the first or second day, I was like, oh my God, I, I see what everyone sees in him. Mm. And then we had this special relationship. And it was kind of suggested that nothing could happen while I was still a student, but you know, maybe something could happen between us when I graduated and that, you know, none of it was really explicit, but I did save all of the emails. Um, and 
sometimes, and I'm jumping around, I'll go back to it, but sometimes in the years since, I have thought to myself, I, I think I probably imagined the closeness between us. You know, it was really just like a, an infatuation or a crush, a one-sided crush. Um, and, and I don't want to say I would feel like embarrassed over my grief, but, you know, probably he meant a ton more to me than I meant to him. And then I'll go back and I'll read all of the emails um, which is always like very painful when I do it, so I don't do it very often. But I'll sure. read the emails, and then I'll be like, no, there really was a pretty deep thing happening between us, and it wasn't just one-sided. It was on both sides. Um, so I haven't, I haven't been able to bring myself to read them in like the last many years. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that I, I think about it differently, um, just recently in therapy I was talking about it, um, and this is a, this is a therapist that I started going to after I had Elliot and she specializes in postpartum women. So mm-hmm. I experienced a postpartum depression after I had my first son. Right. And so I hadn't really, cause this, the, the thing the loss of my teacher used to be a thing that, I mean, it was really like, I, I, I led with it when I went into therapy. It was sure. like a big, huge thing that happened in my life. But with her, I hadn't really talked about it that much because Thankfully, all these years later, it is not something that I think about all the time. I don't feel affected by it anymore. I don't feel every now and then something I'll, you know, I'll think about the, cause he was, um, he was really into media studies and he was really fascinated with the way that the internet was creating this wired world. And I think about all these, you know, podcasts and like all these world events that have happened. I think it's a shame that he's not here to see that because I think he would have been very fascinated by that. So I have those kind of thoughts, but I don't have the, um, the sort of like, I feel haunted to my core feelings that I had immediately afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. But none, you know, nonetheless, he, you know, he seemed like an important part of your life, however sort of brief that may have been. Yeah. And I also wanted to say that, like, I think it's important to call out that, you know, Despite the fact that, you know, you have these these emails sort of to validate, you know, both sides of it, it's even if like, you know, it was more one sided than than you maybe uh, thought. Um, the point is like you still you still um, experience loss, you know, you still right. had this person in your life who you cared about and who you valued and who you, you know, you you sought after like um you still had a loss and that's, that's an important sort of distinction. Right. Right. That's true. That's true. I mean, you know, I think we've, many of us have had the experience in when we're younger of dating someone for just a few weeks and the breakup just floors, you just, oh, yeah. you know, fr- crushes you. Totally. And then probably someone older is like, you only dated for a few weeks, come on, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> but someone like my grandma, who was not very nice, would say something like that. But, <laughs> but, um, but it's like, you know, you can, especially when you're young, I think, you really can give your whole heart to someone very fast. Oh, yeah. And, you, you, I mean, of course, you're projecting a lot onto them and you're putting them on a pedestal and all these things that as you get older, you sort of learn to temper. But, um, but anyway, so my current therapist gently was suggesting that there might have been sort of an emotional abuse element to it. Mm. Um, 
because he was my professor and because he was so much older. And at the time, you know, a lot of my friends knew about it because it was like the, the main thing going on for me, my senior year, I was obsessed with, with this whole situation. What did your friends say about it? Some of my friends thought it was cool and like were on board with it Uh and knew about it and were supportive. And then I had a few friends who felt like it was, it was completely inappropriate of him and that the, because the power dynamic was off. I mean, and Mm. this was, you know, a thousand years before me too. Yeah. Um, But they, yeah, they just felt like he shouldn't be doing this. Like this is not right. Hmm. And even like, I want to revisit it with my therapist because even in talking about it with her, I sort of knew what she was saying was right. But in my body, I couldn't feel it. I couldn't, it didn't, it wasn't like really clicking how this was not right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But so anyway, to answer your question of what the grief looked like, um, the first night, uh, when I found out, so a friend of mine called just to see how I was doing. And I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, Oh my God, you don't know. And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't what. And she's like, and I could tell she's like, Oh no. (laughs) Um, and so I just started like a Rolodex in my mind thinking of all of our mutual friends. Um, you know, thinking like, shit, who, what happened to someone? And then she's like, yeah. Um, you know, and she said his name. She's like, he was in a car accident. And I said, oh my God, is he okay? And then, and I'll never forget this. She goes, no, Allie, he died. Mm. And, um, so what happened was he, um, he had been died. And so I didn't know he had been diagnosed with MS. I did not know this. I knew that he was I knew there were some health things, but I didn't think I didn't think it was anything major. And the summer after I graduated, he had started pulling away from me, and I was really angry in my sort of immature way of being angry about it. You know, now I would not. I, I mean, and I just, I um, I feel like I I feel so much remorse over the fact that I like in an email I called him a shithead, hmm. which like. I would not do that now. Now, if someone were pulling away and I had a whole bunch of feelings about it, I, I would find some better way. But I mean, then you were a kid. I, yeah, I totally was a kid. Yeah. And I was just like, I didn't, I didn't know how to handle the, the feelings that I had. And I, you know, I never intended to move back to Orange County after college. Um, I wanted, I, I didn't want to live in Orange County again. I intended to like come home for a little bit, see what was happening with this professor and then sort of figure out what I was going to do. Um, so I really was kind of holding up my whole life for this relationship that I thought was going to happen. Mm. Um, and then instead what happened is he started pulling away and then I found out he died and it was just like, what? <laughs> like, Oh my God. And I remember thinking, um, you know, people kept trying to say like it, when someone's commits suicide, it's, you know, it's not about you. But I felt like, yeah, but why wasn't I important enough to give him, you know, to make him want to stay? Like, I really didn't, sure. I didn't understand it. I had not lost anyone to suicide. I mean, my experience of suicide at, at that point was like after school specials and what I had learned in, I think, psychology in school and various school programs about like when someone is suicidal, they give away their belongings or, mm-hmm. you know, they, and um, yeah, I just didn't have any, any no, you know what? There was one that year, senior year, there was a student that I had um, in a class, in this professor's class, and he and I and a few other people had been like 
put on a, um, we did a group project together and that boy went to a shooting range and shot himself. Mm. And I was so upset by that. Um, and I remember even, and, and that, and I remember going to class, you know, a few days after and just noticing that everyone was, everyone's just going to class. Like we're all acting like, like something horrendous didn't just happen. Right. And that was very, um, I was very bothered by that. Like the way, cause I felt like there's been like a tear in the fab, in the fabric yeah. of, of our lives. Why aren't you feeling this fully like I am? Why, why aren't we stopping everything right. to acknowledge that like someone just fell through the cracks? Like we mm. just, and this was my feeling. And I don't, I don't, I don't feel this way. I don't think, that, let me rephrase. I don't think this is, uh, right. But this was my feeling. Like we failed this person. Mm -hmm. Like we missed the signs. Um, and I got to class and it was this professor's class. And he was like, you know, we were going to talk about whatever James Joyce today, but instead I, I want us to talk about what happened. Um, and, and so we just spent time talking about it as a class and I really appreciated that. Yeah. That's, and I talked that's big. to him. Yeah. A lot about, cause we were both you know, shaken up by it. Um, mm -hmm. So that was my my one experience with suicide, and then that that this professor committed suicide. So anyway, the night I found out, I could not sleep um, at all. I was afraid to fall asleep because I was afraid to let go in that way. I was like afraid to release control. Mm -hmm. um, I just felt like I don't trust anything and anyone anymore. So um, I'm just going to stay awake. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, eventually I did sleep. I remember I had, uh, so I was working as a journalist then a freelance journalist. And like, I think that I found out on a Friday and I had to write something and turn it in on a Thursday, on the, the next Thursday. And, and I remember what it was. It was a review of a save Ferris album for people magazine. <laughs> oh um, yes. Now you're dating yourself. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I love save Ferris by the way. It was Taylor Swift's new album. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you know that save Ferris plays again. Did you know that? I did know that. And you know, what's a funny little anecdote. My wife sees, um, a, uh, facialist and, uh -huh. and this person, was like the singer for Save Ferris before the main Save Ferris gal. Oh, really? Yeah. What's her name? <sighs> I'm like blanking on her. Her name's Cat. Cat something. Oh, how uh, funny! I'm sure that like I know of her from interviews way back when. Maybe um, I'll get it. I'll get her name and send it to you. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I I had to write that review on Thurs on that Thursday, and I knew it was going to be really hard. But I remember in those early days that like that Thursday was a better day emotionally than the other ones hmm. because I, I had been, but it was so hard to force myself to put anything in my brain other than what I was feeling. Yeah. Um, I, tons of tears, like the, the feeling of hot tears rolling back into my ears while I was lying in bed. Um, I wrote a lot of poetry, like bad poetry. And I remember thinking that, I would have thought intense grief would be wordless and numb, but I am like overflowing with words. I yeah. have so many thoughts and feelings. 
Um, I dri- when I was driving, I would often think I wouldn't mind if I crashed my car. And mm. I don't know if that's because he crashed his car or because I was in so much pain. I think it was both. So um, the... I just want to point of a clar- clarification. The uh, it was called a suicide because he. Oh, sorry, I never. It was I determined never he yeah. purposefully crashed his car. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Um, he was driving and he made a U-turn and then drove straight into this big boulder. Ah, uh, wow. And there are some people who believe it, it's an accident or who will claim it's an accident. Um, you know, like I went to a little service. A memorial at the college and they didn't acknowledge that it was a suicide just and i also went to a service at the school for the boy who committed suicide and they didn't acknowledge it was a suicide then either and that was like a hundred i mean he shot himself at a shooting range it was a hundred percent it wasn't an accident Um, how do you perceive that is that just stigma do you think i think so but it was it really bothered me right um I, I had a real like, what the fuck? I remember seeing another student afterwards and her like putting her arms out and me crying and and just kind of talking about it, but probably a little bit too loudly because I think she was kind of like, I know, I know, and then she like kind of ushered me, mm. <laughs> ushered me a little further away. Um, yeah, it just felt I just felt like let's not let's not whitewash this. Well, um, we need to call a spade a spade if we're gonna look at it and understand it, you know? And like, and again, this was my feelings about then, you know, this person was in so much pain that they took this huge action out of respect to them. Let's acknowledge what happened. Mm -hmm. Let's not, let's not pretend it's something else just for our own comfort. Now with my professor, like I said, it was a little less clear because it was a car accident and who knows. And I, like, I, I think that there are people who want to say it was just a car accident. The obituary said it was just a car accident, sure. but I, um, you know, I, I was, I was trying to get my hands on every bit of information I could at the time. And I called a reporter who had written about it for the local paper, and he told me that the cops at the scene were calling it a suicide, even though it, was, it wasn't it was ruled officially suicide, like on the death certificate. But he told me that they, at, at the time, they were referring to it as a suicide. Oh, wow. So to, that was kind of all I needed to hear. Sure, sure. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's a pretty deliberate thing to make a U-turn and then Seems Ghost. like it. Yeah. I mean, his car caught on fire. Wow. His body was burned. Um, that's a pretty deliberate act. And and then I also think, how could you even do that? How could, like, if I wanted to, I think I would swerve at the last minute. It's, yeah, it's very uh, intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. That's that's really difficult. Thank you. Um, thank you. Like I said, I, 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 I don't think about it a lot anymore. There's not emotion attached when I mm-hmm. think about it, thankfully. Uh, but there was for a really long time. Um, and I think I just, I was, I was young. I was so young and I was, not only was I actually young, but I was, I think emotionally kind of young that I didn't understand the idea of like, you know, love someone, but, 
head head your bets in the sense that like you got to be okay whether it works out or not. Like the goal is to be okay with who you are and okay with your life enough that you're not so dependent on a certain outcome. Um, And I just like that wouldn't, I I don't even think I would have been able to understand that conceptually then. It was just like, no, he's my destiny. I'm in love with him. Right. Uh, I'm going to end up with him. That's what's going to happen. And uh, then I'll live happily ever after. (laughs) You know, so when he all of a sudden, you know, uh, disappeared from this earth, I was like, well, now what? Right. Everything and, changes. Yeah. What is it now? Right. And this person that I would have in the past turned to, to deal with the, the pain of losing him, he's, he's who I wanted to talk to about the loss of him. Right. Yeah. Wow. There's so, um, I've been thinking about this lately cause I, I, I've been looking back at my sort of previous self and and i think my initial inclination is to like judge that person you know Mm -hmm. for my lack of sort of emotional intelligence for my struggles or traumas or whatever but there is i mean as i you know i'm 38 now and as i am getting older like there is equal parts joy and discomfort in realizing that you know, the thing that I was before maybe is not now. And that may change in another 10 years too. And like, that's hard to sometimes deal with. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's identity fracturing, right? But totally. it's, there's also like so much joy that is part of it. Yeah. 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 I, I, I should go easier on the younger version of me. And, <laughs> and I think having kids, both my husband and I have, have, um, Realize that we would never want Elliot to feel about himself the way we feel, felt about the child versions of ourselves and the way we still sometimes feel about those people. I think loving a child so much ha- has been healing in the sense that it allows us to see like we were those sweet little awkward kids too. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's a beautiful display of empathy right there. I guess it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and like that that that's like a great sign of like you know amazing parents. I I would say. Well, thank you. You know, cuz I like I like if I had kids, like my sort of number one goal would be to like break the cycle of that that mm-hmm. self-hate, that sort yeah. of Yeah. um you know, the the violence I experienced as a child, like all that stuff, like break that cycle. Mm-hmm. give them love, give them joy, give them my heart, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, knock on wood, Elliot. And I say, I I have two, Elliot and Owen, but Owen is six months. So he's, uh, he's outside of these conversations to a large degree because right. I feel like he's still, he's still hatching. <laughs> yes. He's still um, a little you know, yeah. mushy baby. Right. Um, but with Elliot, he he seems to be this very sweet, happy, well-adjusted kid who hasn't. Ex- and I'm, I'm literally knocking on wood, even though I'm like, <laughs> don't believe. I don't believe anything, but yet I have these weird superstitions. Yeah, uh, keep I it. think all, all anxious, <laughs> neurotic, kind of neurotic people do probably. Um, but uh, he hasn't experienced trauma yet in his life, and I'm so thankful that he hasn't. Uh, and I hope I can just keep that going for as long as possible. And I know that, you know, you can't you can't shield your kids from everything and you can't protect them from everything. But I do think 
the long as long as you know for as long as we can go without anything really shattering his world that's that's the goal yeah i i was talking you know elizabeth lame yes i love her so she was on the podcast uh in its first year and we we talked about uh grief as a parent and we were talking about how she navigates the sort of the the conundrum which i think you kind of ref you sort of intimated to at the top of the show the conundrum of parents to want to uh, the the sort of pull in their heart to want to protect their kids from everything, but also yeah. want to allow them to kind of be self sufficient and learn, you know, by bumping their heads, for for right. instance, you know, right? Yeah, it's tough, um, it, and that's something that I have to really I have to keep myself in check mm-hmm. when it comes to that. I had very overprotective parents who really. Um, you know, in the service of trying to keep me safe, they imbued me with a lot of fear of the world. And my dad has actually said that he feels that they, he wished he had, he wishes he hadn't done that so much. Hmm. Um, you know, he wishes I, they they didn't, which, which I, I feel, uh, I'm appreciative that at least he can acknowledge that like, this was a, it's a little bit of a over over reaction here, right. but I get it. Like they're anxious people, and you know it's that thing where and 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 I can I'll, I'll tell a story about my mother in law because I, I have a little more distance because it's my husband's mother. Um, anytime she comes and visits, anytime someone's gonna go on any sort of errand, anything involving driving, she's like, "Okay, be careful, drive safe." And it's like, yeah, like I've, I've been driving now for longer than I haven't been driving. I'm going to drive safe. <laughs> but I get that like it's – she just has to check that box. Yeah. It's as long you as she says it, knocking on the wood. Yeah. And I think a lot of stuff with my, with my dad is like to, to quell his own anxiety, he has to warn me about X, Y, Z. Sure. You know, and, and not thinking about how the constant fear mongering is going to affect the child. Just thinking like, if if I don't tell her that this is dangerous and she does it and she gets in trouble, then I didn't do my duty as a as a parent. Um, right. And then this is like, and I'm 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 44. <laughs> like this is still I still get emails all the time warning me of things and thankfully I I'm able to now react to them differently instead of it immediately like making me afraid I just kind of go okay I I see where he's coming from but whatever it is is you know happens to be a world that I know a little better than he does and I can do my own research and like that's a huge growth thing for me to to not immediately go into a tizzy over his email sure um but oh yeah yeah sorry I <laughs> went off on a tangent no uh, I love it but so so anyway, what I'm saying is I come from a background of intense overprotection. Right. And I really don't I don't want to make Elliot think and Owen that the world is a scary, dangerous place and you have to be afraid all the time. Like I right. don't want them to feel that way. But also, you know, in Griffith Park, there's this little train and then there are ponies and mm-hmm. there's pony rides and you can go on the ponies. And I fell off of a horse and broke some ribs when I was in fifth grade. And so Rawhide I Ranch. To... <laughs> Do you remember oh Rawhide Ranch? I went to Rawhide. Me too. 
Have we talked about? Wait. No, no. But I, I, have I you went. Have you said anything about Rawhide? No, I don't think so. But I, okay, I just because... you growing up in Orange County, Rawhide Ranch. Like I went to Rawhide Ranch in the fifth grade too. So. Well, this actually, I did not. It wasn't Rawhide where I. F- oh, you know, you know what? It was. Sorry, I was younger when I got kicked from the when I got thrown from the horse. No I was going in. I think I was in fourth grade, but then I did go to Rawhide in fifth grade. Um, the reason I asked if you had contacted me is because I've mentioned Rawhide a couple times, or I've just mentioned a summer camp that I went to, and then I've gotten tweets from people being like, "Is it Rawhide?" Oh, that's um, funny. I did not like Rawhide. Did you? I no. I mean, I I, I generally <laughs> didn't like sort of outings with large groups of people. So no, I did not like it. <laughs> I had a terrible, and the thing is, I begged my parents to let me go to summer camp because they had both gone to summer camp when they were kids, and I loved the movie Parent Trap, and I was just kind of, um, kind of intoxicated with this idea of what goes on at summer camp, and it's like, you know, it seemed so glamorous, and in your first taste of independence, and there's dances, and not that I love dancing or anything, but it just, I don't know. It just seemed like a cool, I always wanted to be older than I was. Johnny Depp gets killed at one, you know. Wait, which, which movie is that? It's like one of like the first, uh, gosh, I'm going to lose all my nerd cred, but it's, it's one of like the eighties sort of, you know, thrasher movies. Right. Um, yeah, I just, every, you know, I was, uh, I read a ton of teen magazines and they always talked about summer camp. So I just really wanted to go to summer camp and they agreed to let me go to Rawhide. Um, it was like, I definitely didn't have the parents who were like, you know, I'm going to drop you off and pick you up in three months. I had the parents who were like, uh, you know, you're gone for six days and we're not good. We don't feel good about that. But so anyway, I got there and I, yeah, I just had a, I had an awful time. I found Rawhide to be a pretty cold place. Um, I don't, you know, I I think that I was not, maybe I just wasn't ready for it yet, but uh, the actual facility itself and the people there, I I didn't find them to be very warm and understanding. (laughs) I don't remember it that well, but I I think the thing that I did enjoy about it, you know, just kind of latching on to like maybe some joy is that I did enjoy kind of mucking the stalls and working, you know, just kind of being around animals. Yeah, yeah. Which what makes was, sense for me, my life now, because my I was I I was married into horses, so my wife and I have horses now. <laughs> um, I love that. Yeah, it is great. My wife's like you know did 4-H and all that stuff, and so we have horses and dogs and um, um, yeah. Is it Western Anyways. or English? Um, or do you not ride? I I used to ride with her, but. Um, that was more of like the honeymoon phase of our marriage. <laughs> um, now she has like a riding partner that has a bit more passion about riding. I love animals and I love to be around the horses, but the riding part I don't love as much. Uh-huh. But I guess it's like Western more. She like she likes a more sort of natural uh, horsemanship. Right. Well, then she would love rawhide because if I remember correctly, uh, there were no saddles on the horses. You were just riding on a saddle pad. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what... Um, Two questions. What what stables are the horses at uh, in Orange County? And then also my other question is, what were you assigned? What like animal section of animals were you assigned to at Rawhide? Oh, great question. So um, we live in uh, we live in Tribuco Canyon. I don't know if you know that area at all. It's like a weird yes. rural pocket, like near Rancho Santa Margarita, like Lake I Forest. I know it a little bit. Um, have you heard me tell the story? 
of accidentally dating a like weird white pride guy? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Um, so I, uh, I played in a band. Well, no, you know, you answer your questions and then I'll tell you that story. Cause that involves Tribuco Canyon. Okay. So yeah, Tribuco Canyon, my wife and I bought a house, uh, last year here. It's, I don't love Orange County, but this pocket of weird I love cause it's rural. There's goats and ponies and horses everywhere and, you know, llamas and stuff. And so we have the horses in the neighborhood and at Rawhide, I did, uh, the vaulting. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, so I did. Um, I was doing like little dances on the horses and stuff. Right. Yeah. But di- in the morning, like you had your morning chores. Um, I guess my morning chores were just like I, I. I just remember a lot of like cleaning up the horse shit. Okay, so you were assigned to the horses then. I yeah. think so. I went with my best friend Brooke, um, and uh, we were both assigned to the. I think it was the. Sh- we, there was like a, a pen where you would clean up goat shit, I think, and uh, um, and then milk cows, and you'd milk the cow, a cow, and <laughs> then you'd feed the milk to the baby. I don't know if they were goats or sheep. I think they were sheep. Oh wow! So anyway, we were we were both we were both assigned that. But then she got a transfer to the horses. Um, so then I was pretty – because she was super into horses. So then I was just alone with, with all the, the bugs and uh, the, <laughs> the milk. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, you know, and I don't – I never ride anymore. But I, I sometimes uh, want to. Maybe I will again one day. But anyway, to circle back – and I will tell this other story. But to circle back to what I was saying before – um, so I was thrown from horses and then I, you know, after I healed, I continued riding, but then my younger sister got thrown and she was not injured. Like I was, you know, she just got a couple bruises. But at that point, my parents are like, okay, the Rosen girls no longer ride horses. Like this uh, is just dangerous. And especially with what happened to Christopher Reeve to them, that's sure. like, that's like, we knew it was dangerous. This is proof. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the pony rides in Griffith park, uh, I knew in my soul that like, I am not comfortable with Elliot doing this. Um, and thankfully he didn't seem to want to. So I didn't, it didn't have to be a thing of it being like, mommy won't let me do this. He just didn't want to, but that's something that I sort of need to to come to terms with. I don't want to be holding him back from normal developmental things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, At the same time, it still makes me uncomfortable. So anyway, um, I used to play in a band and there was this all day festival at a theater in Anaheim. I forget what it's called now. It was briefly called the sun theater. Okay. And I know that with the Corolla show, we did a live podcast there and I was like, this is that place that we played before, but it has a different name now. Um, but anyway, it was a, it was an all day concert and we were drinking during the day and there was this guitar tech who was really flirty and really cute. And he and I were kind of flirting all day. And then at the end of the show, which was still when it was light out, um, he was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. What are you doing? And we decided we were going to hang out. And, um, and we both drove drunk-ish back to uh, – my parents were were at, were um, in Europe at the time. So I was staying at their house and, uh, and like, house-sitting for them. So we drove back to my parents' house. And then he wanted to go off-roading 
in do people go off-roading in Tribuco Canyon? Um there there are um there's like Holy Gems Canyon, which is a place you can do some of that, I okay. think. He had a Jeep. Almost like a like a very uh rustic Jeep in that it didn't have any sort of roof. And <laughs> okay. I'm not even sure it had doors. It was almost like a military Jeep. Got it. But anyway, um we went off-roading and I got really scared at a certain point. I was just like, what am I doing? Like, this is not how you were raised, Allison Rosen. <laughs> like, I'm with someone I don't know who is, I was drunk. I assume he was, I, I think he was drunk too. We we're off-roading. This Jeep could fall down the, a canyon ravine. He could kill me. Like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. Right. Um, and he wanted to get out of the car at a certain point because it was it was beautiful out there. You could see all the stars. And I was just like, I'm going to stay right here. Like, <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. Um, I was so, so freaked out. Um, and then we drove back to my parents' house and we were having dinner. And I noticed that he had some tattoos. And I was asking like, oh, what are those tattoos? And he was like, oh, this is this is my Celtic cross. Um, oh boy. Yeah. But I didn't, nothing, I didn't know what that, I didn't know what that, uh, suggested, you know, I was just like, Oh, okay. Um, and then a couple others, which were things that I hadn't, you know, rec I didn't recognize what they were. And that was that. Uh, and then the next time we went out, I drove to his place and he lived in, so he, there was this, there were these, there's this rich couple that owned a company in Orange County and I'm blanking on the name of it, but it'll come to me. Um, and they had like a, a converted stable on their property and that's where he lived. He was like the stable boy. And, um, and so that involved like, it was really windy to get to where he was really windy. Hmm. And I was a little bit late and he was, I was a late and a little bit lost. I had gotten lost and that's why I was late. This was, they didn't have ways then. Yeah. And he was really angry at me for being late. And I thought that's a, sort of a red flag. <laughs> sure. And then I got there and he was like, um, you know, why don't you go put on some music on, on my computer? And he had a lofted bed and I sat down at his computer chair and I, and there was this big Confederate flag like tacked to the underside of the bed. Yikes. And I thought, huh, that's weird. And then I looked through his music and there was all this music that I hadn't heard of, like Angry Aryans, Blue-Eyed Devils, um, a band called The Fatherland, uh, just all this shit that I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> what is going on? Um, and also Dido, which was weird to me. Oh. <laughs> um, but uh, I think I, I even asked something about, like, what's this fatherland or motherland or something. And he's like, well, even Mex Mexicans call Mexico the motherland. And I was like, uh, um, file, file, filing that away. Right. Um, and, and then he had, um, some AK 47s in a gun locker. Holy shit. And he had like carved, even though it's totally illegal, he had carved, um, a, a like an escape route or something in, is Tribuco Canyon in Angeles National Forest? No, it's, um, I think it's part of a, uh, 
Like it's right near O'Neill Regional Park, and then there's like a forest, but it's not Angeles National Forest, no. But but it's protected land, right? There is protected land out here, yeah. Okay, so I know that wh- like wherever he had carved his his getaway trail was um was protected land, so it was oh. like illegal that he'd done this. But he was and this. He was like a survivalist before survivalist. And I think all of this was like for when the shit goes down. And I d- right. didn't understand it then. Now it seems more like, yeah, the shit could go down. I don't know what the shit is. And I, uh, I'm i not really doing anything other than having water on hand for it. But <laughs> um, but this was like pre-9-11. You know, right, this right. was a simpler time. Um, and then he like showed me his gun and I again, thought, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. Like, I feel like I'm in mother may I sleep with danger. Like I, and I did not, I didn't even want to come near it. And he was like, look at you. You're so afraid of it. You won't even touch it. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to. And he's like, it's just a tool. Would you be afraid of a screwdriver? And I I, I said like, well, a screwdriver can't accidentally kill you. Um, and he, you know, was very disappointed in that response. Um, of course he was. And what else did he do? Oh, he showed me a dollar bill and showed me all the secret, like, I don't know if it's um, what are they called? Masons or I don't, like all these secret Freemasons, signs. Masons, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. And I should have left that night. Um, you, you stayed the night. I did because I felt like it's more unsafe for me to drive sure. at this time of night on these roads after I've had a little bit to drink. I don't drink anymore, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so I stayed the night. I don't think I slept very much, and then I drove home. And I was like, what the fuck was all of that? Um, and Scary. Then, That's what it was. Yeah. And then I um, I did a ton of research and I really indoctrinated myself in, um, in hate symbols because his tattoos were hate symbols. I just didn't – I just wasn't familiar with them. And I wanted to make sure that I like never wasn't familiar with that again. Sure. So I would find all these Nazi sites – which they shut down really fast. Like they get shut down very fast. Um, but I just, and my friend, my friend made kind of a funny joke, the singer of my band. She's like, you have to stop this before it goes any furor. <laughs> because it's like, I mean, I did go to the bathroom, but like if I could have put on a diaper and just sat in the dark on the computer, I would have, uh-huh. I was, I kind of went down a rabbit hole Got it. of, of trying to stamp out my ignorance. Um, and I found out that he later went to Iraq to fight, which I thought, well, that's perfect. Oh, there you go. Let's, um, let's jump back into your, so one of the things I love about you, Allison, is your vulnerability and your openness about like talking about like depression and those sorts of things has, has that been sort of that vulnerability? Has that been hard for you? Has that been sort of always part of your personality? Cause I, I know you're very open about it and you are, you know, you're, you're a big deal too. You're, you know, this is me, you know, but you're, you're, you know, you're in entertainment, you know, with a big E. So like has the sort of vulnerability talking about your mental health and that stuff, has that been hard for you? Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, not really. Um, it has become, I think it, there was a time where it was hard because I was brought up to like put on a face to meet the faces that you meet. Mm. I was brought up to, uh, don't, don't stand out. Don't be conspicuous for safety. Like don't, don't rock the boat. 
don't uh, just kind of go, go along. Just, just, you know, you can be your true self at home, mm. but it's not safe to be that way in public. So I was not raised to be someone who shared all this stuff. Um, so that process of kind of like shedding the fear of talking openly <clears throat> was really therapeutic for me. And I think it started when I, so I wor was working as a journalist and then I started, um, and I had a, a blog and I started experimenting with doing little web videos and those kind of got, a, oh, and sorry, before that I started doing appearances on television too. So I was like getting into this doing on camera stuff and, um, and I would put up my TV appearances on, which I think is probably illegal, but I would put them on YouTube. And then I would also put up little web videos. I think I only put those on my blog at the time because I didn't want those to go to YouTube because they were so unpolished, but those got a greater response. Like my TV stuff, no one seemed to, to, you know, leave comments about it. Cause, and like, why would they, it's not right. nothing personal about it. It's just like, here's a clip from, you know, the news. Sure. Um, but my little, I would, do, I was doing book reviews at the beginning. Those, there was a lot of interaction. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So then I started doing little web series, and then eventually I, I did Allison Rosen's Your New Best Friend as a streaming Ustream show, right. and that is when I started opening up about different things that I was going through. And I remember I was worried about money, at uh, and worried about how I was going to pay rent. I had, you know, I've been working at magazines and it had gone well. And then I went freelance. And the first year I went freelance was great. And I was like, oh, why didn't I do this sooner? And the second year, it was a lot harder for me. And I felt like I had made a mistake and, um, and I was just nervous. And I, and I just shared some of that, um, on air and people were so supportive and like every, and I just started gradually sharing more and more and everything that I shared, I found that I felt better afterwards because I think that there was this community of people who appreciated the honesty and made me, f and, and reassured me that like I, they related to me. Yeah, absolutely. You know? um, they empathized. So, yeah, it was great. And then on the Corolla show, uh, when I started there, I think I made a choice early on. I had read some comments that had really hurt my feelings and, um, I made a choice to talk about that. And that was like kind of a transformative moment too, because I could have just pretended that I didn't see it and then it didn't bother me. And it's right. funny too, because now like that kind of thing wouldn't bother me, but it was a new experience then. Absolutely. And so it did. Um, so yeah, I think I've just gradually shed more and more of the, the voice that says, don't be open, don't be honest. So the challenge now is for for a number of, I think I'm I've struck a balance more now but for a period of time the challenge was how do I be open about my own stuff when it involves people who are very private because a lot of people in my sure. family are very private even my husband who's now on a regular on the Thursday show when I first met him he's like I'm I'm never going to want to be interviewed on a, or on a podcast like that's just not my thing and right. now he's on a podcast and he's so good at it but you know even with him trying to figure out well how much of our our life together do I share? So that has been a challenge. Um, I relate to that. My my yeah. wife is a, much more private than I am. And I, I've, for me personally, like you, I think you can relate. Like I've found, I've found personally my own sort of mental health journey has been like opening up and talking about this stuff has been so huge for my healing. 
and Jessica, my wife, just kind of operates a little differently, and that's fine too. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that I am seeking underst- I My thing is like I want to be understood. I want to be seen and that's, I think that's everyone's thing. Like that's a human totally. thing. That's a human thing. want to be seen and yeah. understood, but maybe people who didn't get it enough when they were younger uh, become podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> that's certainly why I started this podcast. Yeah. I wanted all the all of the validation. And then it's so great because you you hear you get feedback from people saying that it helps them and it's like really this great sort of selfish yet uh, heal. It, it's like this thing that heals you and also helps other people. That's the beauty of vulnerability. Yes. I, I mean, I, I think it like, I think for me personally, I feel like that is where it's at in, in terms of being a human. Like it, it allows for us to connect with other humans. It allows to uh, relate and empathize and to understand like that's how it happens. Well, so can I ask you a question then? Please. Um, as an empathetic person, how is what's going on politically affecting you? And I will, I will say for me to realize that there are so many people, at least online, who are happy to be cruel mm. uh, is, is deeply troubling. Yeah, I. It's a really good question, and it's something that I've talked a bit about on this show. Um, you know, me me being a person who's considers himself very sensitive, and and mm-hmm. so a bit about my story is like I grew up with a pretty violent father, and what I learned to do as sort of like a protective measure was to kind of uh, put a guard around my heart mm-hmm. and not allow anyone in. Eventually, I learned that while it did sort of save me for a, a time, like eventually it that that hurt me because I, you know, I I had zero vulnerability, I had zero sort of access to emotional insight. So once I started opening up and seeing how healing that that could be, and really tapping into how truly sensitive and feely I am as a person, um, with that also comes like uh, a tremendous amount of boundaries we have to set for ourselves like mm-hmm. i know for myself like i can take on way too much so there was a time in when i was 18 19 20 where i was like trying to mediate my parents marriage and i i you know of course like i couldn't do such a thing there like that, that wasn't going to happen i wasn't going to make a difference but like emotionally i took it all on and so yeah i know that i have to not do that and know that like people have their own emotional paths like i can be there and listen and and but i also have to protect my heart a bit emotionally too so when i think about like fucking trump or trolls on twitter being assholes or you know the amazon rainforest burning uh it's it's devastating. It hurt. It hurts my heart for sure. And the things I, I always wonder, like how how can I help? Right? Like mm-hmm. I know you've wrestled with this too, Allison. Yeah. Like I I know that like I can maybe change one person at a time. You know, allowing others to see the value of empathy and vulnerability and emotional insight and all that stuff. 
Um, but I can also maybe make a difference in my community. I can also vote uh, in the way that I feel is is sort of aligned with my heart. I can keep talking about this stuff and and try not to get too overwhelmed because if we if we do start thinking about the big stuff, it's too overwhelming because one yeah. person can't do it alone, right? Right. Yeah, it's tough. It's a tough time just to, um, you know, like when when you get into, if you do, like a dumb Twitter argument with someone who feels that, you know, hey, if you don't want kids in cages, then don't bring them, don't try to enter the country illegally. And it's like, but it's it's way more complicated than that. And these are children we're talking about. But yeah, like they're, they're kids they have, in cages. Yeah. And they're like, well, then their parents shouldn't have brought them. Yeah. Or like, it's probably better that, you know, I mean, just the like, the refusal to have any softness in their heart for the plight of someone who, of one of these kids, like that just, uh, it just haunts me. It's haunting. But we have to remember that they are speaking on a political level. They're speaking politically language, but not, not on a human level. Right. That's disturbing. (laughs) <laughs> it is disturbing, but uh, sometimes I like to think, and maybe this is maybe this is wrong, but like I feel like there's such a like a political sort of charge to it, and like they can only see the political side of it. Yeah, I think if they did allow themselves to really kind of step back, um, there is a human part of them that sees the the grotesqueness of kids in cages. Well, I hope. I hope so too. I hope, but yeah, I think that they have that. They're compartmentalized, though. I mean, it maybe totally. they're experiencing cognitive dissonance over it, but like they are. But 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 that ability to compartmentalize and to only tap into the political side. Oh, it's it deeply does. unhealthy. Yeah, it's like how fascism comes about. Yeah. It's how mob mentality. Like it's it's scary. It is scary. Yeah. Yeah, I you know. How do you, re- I mean, when, I mean, obviously, like, we're wrestling with it as, like, two grown adults, but, like, you also have children. Like, how do you right. wrestle with that stuff? Um, I, they're not at an age yet where I have to explain anything to them. Sure. Um, and it hasn't, it hasn't really affected me as um, a mother, except that, I am probably more sensitive all the time. And um, when I was pregnant with Elliot, I thought that I was going to be bringing him into a world with our first female president. And that was very exciting. And then, you know, to have it like, well, that's not happening. And that, that was dispiriting to say the least. Sure. But Daniel, I see him, he wrestles with it a lot more. He's very afraid of the world that these boys are going to grow up into. And he talks a lot about, you know, what if he's not around and like, we, you Mm. know, we got to get that, we got to get them into like Krav Maga or something (laughs) so that they can defend themselves or like, you know, they should like these very sort of extreme, he's like fears, but wanting them to being afraid of, what's going to happen, you know, in when they're adults, if he's not here to protect them and it's, it's, you know, what kind of world is it going to be? And like, you know, he said stuff like, you know, maybe they should become doctors because the world is always going to need doctors. And Mm. I mean, he's like kind of, he's semi joking, but. But there's a fear there. There's probably a fear there. Yeah. 
I think that I haven't allowed myself to go there with my thoughts about them yet. I figure like it's not an immediately pressing. It's funny actually, because when we were driving to the hospital, when I was in labor with Owen, my second, um, I was just thinking about the very immediate what's about to happen. You know, my, my brain was entirely wrapped up in like labor and I'm about to have a baby and all of that. And he was thinking about that. He was, and he was actually talking about politics and the future. And I had to be like, can we not talk about that right now? (laughs) That's not my brain is, but I think as parents, you know, I'm very focused on, okay, we've got the pediatrician appointment on this date and I need to buy diapers and do we have enough of this? And, oh, Elliot's going to preschool. So I got to write his name and stuff. You know, like I'm the day to day and Daniel's like very much like what world are they headed to? And he's sort of the the longer term. What right. does this mean? And what are we supposed right. to do? And all that. And I guess you need a bit of both of that, right? Yeah. But I think so. W- without the maybe underlying fear. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a parent. Um, but that just seems, I mean, that is just hard. It's hard being a parent. It's gotta be so hard. I see, I see what my parents, uh, what my, uh, certainly what my parents, well, no, no, I don't want to talk about my parents, but certainly like what my friends, uh, experience with their kids, like it's, it is exhausting. It is, it is, um, it's worth it and and it's amazing but it's also exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> has has the sort of self-care aspect of like being a mom and exhausted all the time has that been hard to navigate? At the beginning it was. Okay. Um, at the beginning be- before I had any sort of help. Right. Um, because I work from home and my mom was a stay-at-home mom and I just assumed that like, I don't need a babysitter or a nanny. Like I don't, I I really didn't, I don't think of myself as someone who has a problem with not thinking about the future, but yet in the, in the course of talking about this, talking about how I'm very much in the day to day with, with the kids, I'm realizing that like, maybe there is a, there is an element of that because when I was pregnant with Elliot, I really didn't think about the logistics of like, how is it going to work when I have a baby and I also am trying to work? Even though I'm working right. from home, I was like, I'll just hold him. I'll just hold him while I work. <laughs> I didn't realize that like it, it doesn't work that way. So at the very beginning, this thing of like, I don't. How can I? When am I going to take a shower? Like <laughs> I don't. I don't know how to take a shower. I don't know how to send an email. Like I can't. You know, I can't get anything done. That was that was really tough. Yeah. Um, and then as soon as I started, I just started slowly. Like I would have. There was um, this babysitter that was was really nice, and she I really liked her, and she would come twice a week for like three hours at a time, and um, and that was just a huge a huge relief because then I could go return emails, I could take a shower, and I remember feeling really guilty over I was like was I watching a TV show in the other room or something. Um, and yeah, feeling like this, like there's, I, I'm hiring someone to raise my child while I'm in here watching a TV show. And the funny <laughs> thing is like, now I would never feel guilty about that. Oh, that's um, good. Cause I, yeah. I, I can't obviously relate exactly to that, but like, it makes me feel like when I'm like at a hotel or something and like the, 
the maid walks in and I'm like lounging on the bed. I always feel super (laughs) guilty. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point I was just like, I, I work. And so I need to have childcare. Yeah. And, um, but I didn't realize that I was, I, I had been carrying around these preconceived notions and judgments about the right way to raise kids. And it was strictly based on how I was raised. Mm -hmm. And it was, but the difference being that my mom was a stay at home mom and I'm, I work, um, which is like a very big difference. So, uh, yeah. So the self care at the beginning was tough. Um, now that I have help, um, it is, it's still trying to think how it goes. I mean, there are still moments where it's really tough because like with Elliot being sick, he woke up at 4.45 a.m. and just, you know, was up. And uh, and anytime – and so I was up with him, and I'd gone to bed late that night. And, like, anytime I tried to lie down, he would start crying. And mm. he's not normally clingy to that level, um, but he just didn't want me to be in my room lying down. He <laughs> – he thinks the living room is called home. I, for some reason, <laughs> him, that's going home. Going home is going oh, into that room. Um, so he'd be like, no, mommy home, mommy home, and point to the living room. So I'm like, I will just be sitting up all day. And I'm, and that, you know, I, I hit a wall that day where I'm like, I am cranky and I feel like I'm losing my mind. Right. Um, and, you know, like he didn't want me to go to the bathroom. He didn't. So there are moments where the self-care is like, okay, there just won't be any self-care today, but it doesn't get as, it doesn't, it's, it, it's not the thing that it was when I had Elliot where it's like, I don't think I've slept in five months. I'm exaggerating, but you know, yeah. or it's no. like, I, I haven't been able to take a, a shower that's lasted longer than a minute in a long time or, you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Like, I feel like I kind of have a rhythm now. Awesome. That's good to yeah. hear. How, like, I know there, I know you've mentioned it before, um, you know, just having some, I don't know if you'd call them issues or struggles with like food stuff. How has that been for you? Um, so I was overweight, uh, as a kid and then up and down in my teens and then up and down as an adult and then. Um, finally, but like, I was always like the fat kid. That was, that was my, that was who I was. Um, in, I went to a small school. There was just one slot. There were two fat kids and then one of them changed school. So then it was, I it was just me. Um, and, um, and of course, you know, all the attendant self-esteem issues and all that stuff. So then when I moved to New York, I, I started losing it at a, at a certain point. And then I, you know, continued to lose the weight. And I kept it off for years and years and years and years, but I always had all these issues. Um, and then when I got pregnant with Elliot, I gained like 70 pounds and that was really hard for me to watch the number climb up to where I never wanted to be again. Cause you tied, you tied shame to that, the size, right? Yeah, totally. The size, the number, um, it was a control thing. It was, I'm turning back into that person. I mean, and this is like very amorphous, but it's like, I'm turning back into that person who I don't want to be. Right. 
And I don't even know what that means. It's just like old me versus new me. Old me is, is that person. Um, and then after I had Elliot, I was able to lose all of it, but 10 pounds and it came off. I wouldn't say it was super easy, but it wasn't super hard. Like, thankfully I just, you know, I exercised and I, and I, um, counted calories. And every time I would step on the scale, it would be a few pounds less. And I was like, Oh, thank God. Um, and then I was like, I'm not going to gain that much weight with Owen. And, uh, instead I gained even more <laughs> mm-hmm. and I Which realized you're supposed to, you're pregnant. Yes. But the recommendation is like 25 to 35 pounds. That Got being it. said, a lot of women gain more, like yeah, a lot. Absolutely. Do. Um, and I had a different doctor this second time and he was like, it's just what your body does in pregnancy. And that was, that made me feel a lot better as opposed to like the, my doctor before who was like, did you really gain 11 pounds in a month? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right to me. Um, so, cause she was just like, and she wasn't trying to be mean about it, but she was, there's, you know, there's complications in pregnancy that can cause sudden weight gain. So that's what she was trying to rule out. Um, she didn't, she wasn't aware of your sensitivity to, to that, you know? Right. Right. Um, right. So, uh, I remember at, at some number of weeks in, you know, I th- no, I know what it is. In your first trimester, you're supposed to gain, I think they say like three to five or something. And I gained 18 with Elliot. And then with Owen, I also gained 18. And when I realized, oh my God, I gained the exact same number at the exact same point in the pregnancy. Um, that's when I'm like, this is a bit out of my hands. My idea that like, I'm going to really control it and I'm going to gain 12 pounds this pregnancy or whatever. Like it's just beyond my control. Um, and so I kind of accepted it. And so now I am trying to lose it. I've lost maybe half of it. Um, but it is so much more of a struggle this time than it was last time. And I don't know if it's cause I'm older. I don't know what is going on, but it is just, it is, it is moving, but it just, it's, it's just harder. And I'm having to accept that like, this is who I am right now. I am someone who is carrying extra weight and, um, and you know, there's a part of me that wants to hide until I feel like I'm back to who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I'm not going to go out in public. I'm not going to do anything in the in the public. And I'm not going to this and I'm not going to that. Um, but I am fighting against that, I think, because I feel like I just can't afford to, <laughs> to hide for a year or however long it's going to take me. So, like, we're doing a live childish show. Um, on September 3rd. And I am <clears throat> this week, I'm, I'm doing a couple other podcasts that are video podcasts and, and it'll be fine. And I think that actually a, a nice thing that's happened is I'm more accepting of it. I'm more okay with it. And I'm just like, yeah, like I'm a human being and I had a couple kids and this is me and this is my body. And I know I don't accept it in the way that I wish I did, mm-hmm. but I also am not um, filled with self-loathing like I would have been years ago. Oh, that's good. Uh, do you, because I, you know, I, and I, uh, I hopefully that was okay to talk about 
Um, oh, I'm yeah. Just, yeah, I talk about that stuff. I'm just sensitive to that world because I, I've battled anorexia myself, like in my late teens and early 20s. And, um, you know, and I, I know you've talked about sort of the struggle with, I guess it's good to, it's from my perspective, it's, it's, I'm grateful to hear that, like, sort of emotionally, mentally, you're, you're kind of, you're dealing with it in a, in a healthier way than, than you would have before. Right. Yeah. And I think that my dysfunction with it, it manifested in all sorts of weird food behavior. Nibbles. Nibbles. (laughs) Nibbles. (laughs) So Nibbles McGee is my alter ego who snacks in the middle of the night. And it truly is sleep eating. Like I think there's like a nighttime eating thing. I've read that it's like be some it's somewhere between a sleep disorder and an eating disorder mm. because sometimes it would be like just I can't sleep so I'm going to see what's in the refrigerator, but more often than not it would be waking up in the morning and then seeing something and being like, "Oh my god, I forgot that I ate that in the middle of the night." Like it truly was uh well, yeah, I was that's wild. not awake. Yeah. Um and thankfully that has just for now, I'm not going to say it's gone away entirely because I'm sure it's always part of me, but I, that hasn't been happening for Mm -hmm. a while now. Here's the really weird thing. When my weight is up, the weird food behaviors are lessened. And then when my weight is down, the weird food behaviors come out. And I think that's like, because my body naturally wants to be bigger and in order to be smaller, and not and not everyone believes this, but this is sort of what I have learned about myself. In order to be smaller, I have I am in control. I'm controlling a lot of things. You have to control it more. You think you have to yeah. think about it more. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Right. So when, like in pregnancy, that was the n- most normal and healthiest, quote unquote, I've probably ever eaten, um, because I was like, I'm not trying to manipulate my body. Um, that you know, sounds now like that a good place to be. It is. However, <laughs> I want to lose the pregnancy weight. So now sure. I am trying to manipulate it. But yeah. thankfully, but, but anyway, what, so what I was saying is though, I think the most, dis, my greatest dysfunction, yes, there's a lot of weird food stuff, but it really manifests itself in like the way that I treat myself mentally, which is just to be really loathsome of myself. Yeah. And really, you know, I started going to a 12 step group for eating disorders not because I wanted to learn to eat in a healthy manner, but because I wanted to like free myself of hunger. I mm. I wasn't aware of what I was doing at the time, but like I really thought I'm going to get on top of this thing where I feel the need to eat. Like that's really what sent me in there. And then once I was in there, I realized like, oh, uh, that's this thing where I eat when I'm hungry is not my problem. Right, right. It's a bunch of other things. Um, but I really went there because I wanted to control it further. Like I recognized that I was having a lot of thoughts around it that just weren't healthy. And I just, but I really wanted to control it like, you know, a hundred percent. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm grateful to hear that you're, you're in a better place for sure. Like yeah. that's, yeah. that's nice to hear. Um, I do have a couple of questions, uh, and then we can kind of wrap it up. I have a couple of questions from, one from Instagram, one from Facebook. I swear, like, I anytime I, like, reach out to, like, people, the audience for questions, I never get them. 
and and when I do, it's only like a few. So come on, audience, you got You can do better. I know you can. Step it up, guys. Step it up. Um, well, this first one is from at Dulcinea D U L C I N E A C A on Instagram. Yes. Uh, she says, quote, looking back, is there anything she, meaning you, Allison, uh, wish would have been available to her when she struggled as a kid with anxiety slash anxious situations? Yeah, therapy. Mm, I yeah. think I would have benefited from um, being in therapy as a kid. And I wasn't. Um, I, I, that was not offered to me. Um, and I come from a very therapy. Thera- Therapeutically oriented family, but I don't know if my parents didn't recognize that maybe I needed it or that it would have helped, or if they didn't, you know, had had distrust of child psychiatrists, or hmm. I don't know for for whatever reason I didn't talk to a therapist until I was, I think I was twenty, nineteen or twenty, um, yeah, twenty. So yeah, I think that would help me. Yeah. Me too. I, I think I think what it would help me is just someone to like name the thing that I was feeling. Yeah. Or help me name the thing, you know? Um uh okay, and then this uh question, you may not have an answer to this, but maybe some thoughts just because your little humans are a little younger uh than my friend Rachel's. But this is from my friend Rachel. She says, I would love to know how she recommends navigating mom life in regards to building a child's self-esteem. I have a tiny human with really low self-esteem and I want to find a way to build it. My instinct is to tell her she's good at everything, but that's a false fluffer. Yeah, that's hard. Um, I, you know, so Greg Fitzsimmons with whom I, I host, um, our parenting show childish. Um, he told me, that you're not even early on, like there's just a philosophy that you're not even supposed to say good job to them. And I was like, what? <laughs> I've heard of <laughs> Why? this. Yeah. Yeah. You don't say good job. Instead you say you did that. And the reason is because you don't want, and I'm not super familiar with it. So let me, let me uh, try to articulate what he explained to me. Like you don't want them doing something in order to get your approval and your praise. You want them to do it because they, you know, for themselves. And the more you say good job, like the more they'll turn to you to, to see like, was this good, this thing that I did? Mm. Um, so I think that's interesting. So, um, okay, cool. Yeah. So that's an idea. I, that being said, I think that it's natural that they're going to check in with you constantly for feedback on how they're doing. Like that's just development. Um, I think, I don't know that there are like one-to-one ways you can foster self-esteem. I think it's more just create a safe, loving environment. Totally. And let them know that you support them and love them and think they're great without, you know, I think I, I get what she's saying about the false fluffer thing. Yeah. But you can genuinely love them and genuinely think they're great. You should. Yeah. And, and she certainly does, you know. Um, yeah. The thing about like this type of thing is like every kid, like you see it. Every kid is so different and needs mm-hmm. different things. Right. Right. And sometimes as much as it may be hard for a, a parent is like sometimes they are going to struggle and there may not be that much you can do about it other than, as you said, Allison, give them that safe, loving space. 
Yeah. And let them know it's okay to struggle. I mean, that's been a huge thing with, with Elliot when he has a temper tantrum. Um, when he's upset, I just, I say to him, you know, I, I know you're really upset, honey. I, I can see that. It's very frustrating when we, you know, can't have what we want and you can be sad for as long as you want. And I swear something, when I say that you can be X, Y, Z for as long as you want, something shifts in him. Mm. Um, I love that. Be, and that's what I would have wanted instead of trying to be talked out of. I think it's natural. I think parents want to talk their kids out of their feelings. Like, Oh, come on. It's okay. Come on. Come on. That kind of like, sure. and, I, and, and that just makes it worse. And I know that, when I am talked out of my feelings, it makes it worse for me. So well, and especially when you're so young like that, you yeah. you take that as like, oh, how I what I'm doing right now is wrong. Right, right, yeah. right. And then yeah. you rebel against it. So yeah. yeah, just letting him know, like I accept. It it really is magical. I I hope it w- keeps working for a long time. I hope so too. I think Thank it will. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's before we kind of plug uh, the live show and your podcast and all that stuff. Uh, we always wrap up the show talking about empathy heroes. These are people in our lives we know personally. They could be even characters from a book or quotes we love, an author we love. Um, I will name my empathy hero first to give you a moment to think on yours. Uh, my empathy hero this week is uh, the author Rebecca Sofer, who uh, was a guest on my podcast. Um, her uh, Her episode is still uh, coming out, uh, future date, but uh, she wrote or co-authored a book called Modern Loss, and it's all about dealing with grief. And it's fantastic. Um, and I just love this quote. She says, quote, it's tough to figure out where death fits in between photos of burritos and babies in an unfiltered stream. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's great. I love it. So, uh, Rebecca Sofer, you are my empathy hero this week. How about you, Allison? <sighs> oh, this is tough. Um, I am going to say my husband, um, and I don't have a quote from him, but (laughs) I just love that he doesn't shut down or shut off, um, or become vindictive because I, I, I grew up in a house a bit where things could be conditional and, Mm. um, and there was a bit of vindictiveness and he is like, he doesn't change. Like he's a, he's a very kind, considerate, reasonable person. And even if he's stressed, even if he's upset, he is still those things. And I admire that so much as his wife. And I admire that so much as someone who is co-parenting with him. I think that's wonderful for my kids that he's just, he's stable in that way. Um, and just like a really good, kind, decent person. Yeah, that's lovely. I love that. Uh, what a refreshing space that is. Yes, yes. Awesome. Well, Allison, where um, where can uh, the feely humans out there um, connect with you, listen to your podcast, definitely plug all the things? I will. So Allison Rosen is your new best friend, comes out Mondays and Thursdays, and you can get that anywhere that you get podcasts. Um, 
you can also get it at apple.co slash Allison Rosen. And, um, and then Childish comes out on Wednesdays. And you similarly get that anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Um, a, a quick link if you're on Apple Podcasts is apple.co slash Childish. Uh, the website, my website is allisonrosen.com. Childish website is childishpod.com. I'm Sorry, there appears to be someone at my front door. Can you hang? Sorry, hang on one second. Yeah, no worries. Oh, <laughs> it's my son <laughs> coming in uh, with the nanny, but ringing the, the doorbell. Okay. Um, <laughs> it was so funny. I could see that. We have a ring video camera, and I could see his little smile. So cute. Um, okay, sorry. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yes, I'm I'm at Allison Rosen on Twitter and Instagram. Just one Alan Allison. Um, and at Childish Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And then we're doing our very first live Childish show next week, September 3rd at the Belly Room at the Comedy Store in LA. And tickets are just $5. Our guest is Andy Richter. So it's our first official guest. Um, and it'll be a good time. And if you go to childishpod.com, you can you can click on a link. You'll see it right when you get there. That'll take you to uh, the place to buy tickets. It's also on allisonrosen.com. Awesome. Well, everyone, the all of those things are linked in the show notes. And I'm going to be at said live show tomorrow. So uh, come say hello to Allison and I'll be in the audience. Um, so yeah, do that. And listen to her podcast because they are great. Thank you. Oh, you get you can hear Elliot. Uh, I love it. Um, well, Allison, thank you so much for being on You Me Empathy. It was it was lovely. Thank you so much. I loved our talk. And to you listeners, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Love, love, love. Love, love.